When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, hello. Welcome to Sounds Good with Brandon Harvey. I'm Brandon, and this is the show where every single week I sit down with people who absolutely inspire me and find out what kind of unique wisdom and hope they have to offer the rest of us. Every conversation we have contains profound moments of truth and honesty designed to widen our perspectives and improve our hope for humanity. This week, I'm so excited that I got to have a conversation with Ken Weitzma. Ken is a leader, he's an innovator, he's a social entrepreneur, and he's also the founder of the Justice Conference, which is how I first found out about Ken and ultimately first met Ken. The Justice Conference really opened up my eyes to the world of injustice, and it gave me a great deal of motivation to be doing the kind of work that I'm doing today. And for that, I am incredibly thankful. Ken is also the founder of Kilns College, where he teaches courses on philosophy and justice, and he does a ton of consulting for nonprofits doing amazing work. Oh, and on top of that, Ken has also written a handful of books. They're fantastic. His most recent one is called The Myth of Equality, and it dives into uncovering the roots of injustice and privilege. And that's what this week's episode is about. We're talking about uncovering the roots of injustice and privilege. We're investigating this idea of, is privilege real or is it imagined? What does the history of racial inequality look like in the United States? And how are we all playing parts in it? And this is a tricky conversation. This is honestly something that's difficult to talk about for so many of us. I know for myself, I've spent the last few years just trying to dive into the history of racial inequality in the United States. And as a white guy, you know, it's it's really uncomfortable. It's a difficult thing to, to dive into and think about, but I think it's really important. We've seen a lot of tension pop up along racial lines. It feels like every week there's a new story in the news and it polarizes people. It's pulling people apart. I don't know. It's just, it's a really tricky conversation, but Ken is fantastic. He's really dove into this issue. It's important to him. It's an important conversation. And I think that it's really cool that we got to have this conversation here on Sounds Good, where ultimately we want to have these deep and meaningful conversations. We want to dive into these issues that are difficult because we know that they're important. We know that they're meaningful. And we don't want to stand by and be part of the problem. We want to be part of the solution. In this episode, Ken helps us answer the question, why is it important to understand our history when we talk about our privilege and race relations in this country? I know that this sounds like a lot. I know that it sounds a little heavy, but the thing is, this was such a good conversation. I am so excited that we get to have this on the show. And so without any further ado, let's just jump right into the conversation. I was thinking about this as we were preparing for this interview, and I actually learned a lot about social justice because of you. I learned about kind of being aware of and fighting back against the injustices of the world from this conference that you put on called the Justice Conference. And when I first moved to Portland, this conference was a really big light bulb experience for me. And after the conference... I ended up, you know, within a year traveling all over Asia with different nonprofits, traveling the United States, using my photography to to empower and help nonprofits. And in, in a lot of ways, you really got me started on this trajectory of what I'm doing now. And I love that we get to kind of come full circle and have this conversation today. Very cool. Tell me a little bit more about what first woke you up to racial inequality. Uh, yeah, I think the 
that I'd take that question in two parts. What woke me up to to justice, um, or you know, kind of having a concern for the other, and that would go all the way back to when I was eight, nine years old. Um, so my dad's a uh, immigrant from Holland. He immigrated in '53. He was eight years old, so war-torn Europe. I grew up with stories of my grandfather uh, dressing up like a woman to ride a bike into the country to to forage for food when when my grandma was too pregnant with my dad uh, in '44, which was towards the end of the war. So really, the play it forward part of my life is that my dad is an immigrant, and all of his experiences then had compassion um, when I was eight or nine to sponsor a, a family of five from Cambodia. So this was during the genocide in Cambodia under Pol Pot, the Khmer Rouge regime. And this group of people had fled to a Thai refugee camp. They weren't a nuclear family, so it was a husband, wife, and child, and then a brother and sister. And they came and lived with us for a year and a half. I watched my parents take them through naturalization, uh, teach them how to, uh, how to drive, t- teach them how to speak English. The day they arrived, uh, Foy Long, the dad, sat down and wrote a letter to my dad talking about uh, people eating people and, and, and children with guns and kind of a crazy thing. And I really think that early experience, being in relationship with that family, put empathy in me. And empathy is behind mm. all justice. If you can't draw close to the other and feel their humanity, then, then there's going to be no movement toward justice. So that was kind of my first awakening just to justice in general. And then at age 22, I, I took a big turn in my life, got religious, went and pursued a philosophy degree and was studying specifically ethics because of this justice kind of button of mind focus. Um, and then I, I think it, it really began to accelerate when I jumped into the justice conference. So you start a conference to try and help expose people to these bigger ideas of social justice, of, of international kind of relief and development kind of concerns. And you begin to realize the messier part of our own history that kind of hides off of certain exits on the freeway, um, places that you don't normally travel. And, and you begin to see it more and more that there's really inequity in this country. And that, that, mm. that, that's been kind of the, the, the reality for all of our history. And, and so I just began to build relationships with people to listen, to learn, to lament it myself, to try and understand where I fit in this whole narrative. And that's really where over the last six, seven years, the, the racial part came in for me. Yeah. And it's tricky because I would imagine for years, you know, focusing on social justice around the world, you got to be somebody who was the helper in in many ways. And this is something I've experienced as well, where I'm like, wow, I get to like help these people because I'm aware of the problems. And then as soon as you become a little bit more aware of racial inequality in the United States, you you kind of realize that you are the problem. And I realize that I am the problem and, and I have to stop being the problem before I can even start being the solution. Yeah, it's funny you say the word help. Uh, one of my big epiphanies, or, or at least understanding it or framing it in a certain way, was I was at dinner with a Native American friend of mine. He's in his mid-60s, so he's lived a lot of life. Uh, he, he was telling me about my own town that I live in now and how it was a sundowner town. And when he grew up as a kid, uh, he'd come into town and see signs and windows of no dogs or Indians allowed. Uh, you know, just crazy stuff like that. And as we were going through the conversation, um, he says, have you seen the movie The Help? And I hadn't at the time. He says, I want you to go this weekend and see the movie The Help and then come back and talk to me. So I went and saw it. And then we circled back up and he basically pointed me to the scene. You know, remember the movie is set back in the 50s and there's segregation and it's really awful racial stuff. But there's kind of the, the social club leader is, is pushing for a movement that they're, they're all going to build um, bathrooms outside of their houses so that their help, uh, the African-American women in the South, uh, won't use their bathrooms, you know, defile them or something like that. It's, you know, thoroughly racist. And... And as this whole thing progresses and you see the, in, um, the inhumanity of it, you get to this fundraiser that the social club is putting on and this kind of, uh, this lead woman who's, who's pushing for all this stuff is collecting furs to sell to give to the poor orphans or the poor kids of Africa. And in this poignant moment, she looks over at the help who she's been persecuting, right? And says, you of all people should appreciate this. 
And the hypocrisy like is just is, is dripping in that moment. And that's what I realized, certainly for the American church or the evangelical church, um, has been a big issue, um, is that we'll run overseas to, to save Uganda or to save this or to fix um, the HIV problem, which is not a bad thing. But if we're doing that and, and turning a complete blind eye to the injustices all around us, then something's broken, right? I think that you just touched on this a little bit, but there's no beating around the bush in that your book that you recently wrote, The Myth of Equality, is for white evangelical Christians. And you're a white, straight, male Christian leader. Why do you think that it's important to write this book? Yeah, so it's interesting. I was asked to write it and wrestled with it quite a while. I like to joke that you know the publisher sat around you know, it's a book on white privilege, right? So I, I, I think the publisher was sitting around and they were all talking and saying, uh, what white guy do we know that least deserves all he has? <laughs> you know, and they, <laughs> they somehow came up with me. But, but no, I, I pray, uh, you know, I really reflected a lot on, on taking the project on. And the two things that were really driving me are arguably some of the greatest racism in the history of our country has been perpetrated by evangelical Christians. So where is the Bible Belt? The Bible Belt's in the South. Where Where is and was the greatest racism? In the South. And so somehow Christians have been a big part of the problem by over-spiritualizing kind of their faith life and disconnecting that from anything to do with their neighbor or the other. Mm. Um, social justice didn't factor into their gospel. And so one, I want to offer a critique that says that's a, that's a bad rendering of, of your, uh, your own beliefs. It's not the way of Jesus. It's certainly not the way of love and a relationship with God ought to connect to a relationship with others, right? That there ought to be harmony or peace or justice in that. Second thing is, is we have a, we have a hard time hearing a critique from someone outside of our, our circle, right? If they don't share our experiences, don't quite use language the same way, if they're, if they're on the other side of the line, they're not in our tribe, it, it's really hard to have them push in on our, our worldview, our basic assumptions, you know, things that are very core to us. And so we, we can quickly see it, if, if our brain is like an operating system, we can quickly see it as a virus that's coming in that's gonna affect things and we and we try and we try and fight that virus, and so often we need people within the tribe to to kind of help contextualize it and communicate it for others in that circle, and that this wouldn't be the be all end all. I'm not the expert on race. I I, I certainly know a lot. Um, I'm more of an expert on privilege and and this kind of religious or evangelical history. But this is a bridge book so that if people can can begin to move along the spectrum they'll move to actually reading books by leaders of color. Most people that haven't uh, dove into any kind of social justice stuff, uh, white folks, are not going to jump right into reading Cornell West, right? Um, <laughs> but if they read this book, maybe um, down the road they will read Cornell West. And that's my real hope, right? Because until you hear from the other, learn from the other, then we're not going to really um, know each other's stories and see the common humanity through that. Yeah, and I think that there's something to be said about it's not Cornell West's job to be the bridge. Cornell West gets to be Cornell West, and I think you and I as white folks, we get to have this conversation with, for lack of a better word, like our people and, and help bridge that gap and bring them to a place where they can take on you know this next level with a Cornell West or a you know a Michelle Alexander and dive into this on a deeper level. But I think that's what I see this podcast as in many ways, you know, not every episode, but sometimes we do get to dive into these topics where I would imagine that my audience, I don't know this for sure, is is largely white. And I think that in some ways it's my responsibility to to at least bring this conversation up. And if it falls on on people who aren't ready to hear it, then they're not ready to hear it. But for the people who are, like that's a cool opportunity, I think, to get to bring people through this experience that I had and you had and uh, and ultimately allows us to 
live our lives better and, and more justice-oriented. Yeah, and, and the tone of that conversation really matters, which is why it, it probably fits really well on a podcast like this. But the, the conversation of whiteness is a new one to most white people. It's mm. funny, we talk about all other groups of people um, by naming them by color, but most white folk aren't used to, I wasn't used to being named by my color. And so this conversation, if it, if it comes at you, it's a you, we get really defensive. Um, it's a, it's a much easier conversation to have if we say we and we're shoulder to shoulder looking at history and reflecting and studying on it, um, as a shared kind of exploration of what's true about, about the racial history in this country and what does that mean for, for the life that I've, I find myself in. Um, for good or bad, right? The relationships I find myself in, uh, the circle of friends that I have. You know, if you go on Facebook and really looked at your circle of friends, um, we're all a lot more segregated than we realize. Mm. And, and so I think that the tone really matters. It's not a, you know, talking about white supremacy doesn't mean you are a white supremacist. It means that we're, we're naming something that happened in this society where hundreds of years racist white men were put in power, political power, because women couldn't vote and the vote was taken after the Civil War from black people. And, and white racist men built a society that, that propped up, um, white people. And so, you know, even, even Woodrow Wilson, we look at Woodrow Wilson, World War One, and, and he was the great guy of self-determination. He was gonna, after World War One, get rid of this whole colonial thing that the British and the French were doing, and that there should be democracy. His famous statement, we need to make the world safe for democracy. And the big irony is he was a Southern Democrat, arguably the most Christian president we've ever had. And when he came to DC, he implemented Jim Crow in DC. Mm. Like he brought it to the federal government. DC was an integrated city. And when he showed up, he took the federal government and made it for whites only. So it's just a really complicated past, this idea of white supremacy. And so we're not, we're not talking at someone. We need to be shoulder to shoulder reflecting on kind of the realities in the history. Yeah. So let's I think that with this episode, what I want to do is dive into three things. Well, we can almost break it up into chapters. Chapter one, I want to talk about the history of racism from its fairly new inception, surprisingly new, to today, what racism looks like in America today. And then chapter two, what privilege is and what it means for folks like you and me. And then chapter three, what's being done and what we can do. So what the movement already is to fight back against racial injustice and how we can be a part of it. But you've already kind of started down the path of of history. And I'll ask, why is it important to understand our history when we talk about privilege and race relations in this country? Yeah, I, that's a really big question. But I think we always need to know how we got to where we're at, right? And and we assume that we ended up here by accident uh, if we don't really study it. And, and usually we end up places because humans in power uh, have created systems or structures, basically rails on which kind of the world runs that, that lead directly from whatever point in time that is to where we are today, right? And so I think you kind of said, where, where did racism come from? Because it's a rather new thing. I think what you're talking about is that before the age of exploration, so the late 1400s, the early 1500s, which ironically is the same time as the Renaissance, and it's the same time as the Reformation, so the Protestant Reformation. But, but all of a sudden, ships are able to go further, uh, and you begin this age of exploration. And prior to that time, Thomas Cahill argues this um, very strongly, uh, in his book, Heroes and Heretics. But before that time, you had classism. So, you know, think of India and you have the higher class and the lower classes, uh, or the aristocracy in England, you know, where some are high born or high bred and some are, are, are low born, right? So you have this kind of classism. You also have xenophobia. I prefer my country, all foreigners I don't like. Um, you know, so you can have an ethnic prejudice against people from a different country that speak a vulgar language uh, or something like that. But you don't see, prior to this age of exploration, that color begins to be the way we name 
inherent human differences and, and try to say, uh, that, that there's a kind of an evolutionary, if you will, this, we're borrowing later terms, but, but on this hierarchy, this vertical hierarchy, some are less civilized and some are more civilized and the darker the color, pegs you lower and then as you go up you're kind of reaching the zenith and it it was a useful tool so we like to think america was settled by these religious pilgrims but it was first settled by by really hardened sailors and profiteers um, that were 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 charting unknown seas in search of riches and they were doing it under the you know behest or approval of kings and queens, and those kings and queens needed spiritual backing from the Pope to be able to to kind of claim and make that part of their territory. And so the Pope, Renaissance popes, right? So you have the Reformation splitting off. So the popes, which were very worldly at that time, were looking for more land. We just lost all of Germany to Luther. How do we grow the Catholic faith? How do we get more land and more money? And, and so there's this partnership that comes in with kings getting the permission spiritually from the Pope to, to claim lands in the name of Jesus if there's not a Christian civilization there already. Uh, and if not, then, then they're basically free to enslave or, or to conquer. And so when, when Columbus lands in America and, and other explorers later, uh, they, they come on land to people that are half naked in the way Indians or Native Americans used to dress. And they would read them a document claiming this land in the name of the Pope. And, hey, if you join us, then great. If you don't, we'll wage war against you. So imagine just how absurd it is reading a document talking about um, European civilization, government, popes, kings, to, to people that don't even speak the language and couldn't even fathom what it is you're even talking about anyways. And, and this was their way of going, you know, we're doing this in a legal way, but because you can't respond, you, you basically default on that option. So now we're going to take possession in the name of the king, in the name of the faith or the pope. And, and so when Columbus went back, he, he wrote in his journals and passed on in his letters, always the phrase, we found them half naked, because that's basically legal terminology within that structure that allowed them to say they weren't civilized. We didn't meet another civilized nation, so therefore it was there for the taking. So this, this exploitation was religious, you know, was built with a, a religious uh, framework or relationship. It used, strangely enough, legal channels, but it ultimately began to create this, um, darker people, continent of Africa, uh, are there to become slaves, there to serve our economic interests. These new lands might have people occupying them, but they can't own the land because they're not civilized like us. They don't have governments like us or laws like us, and therefore we move in and we begin to take them. So racism really gets going there, and then by the time we get to the slave trade and then on into you know the post-Civil War history in America, you've got this real race problem because it's embedded in in the psyche and in the fabric of, of how we've created this country. I mean, uh, it's been said that, that slavery was America's original sin. So racism hmm. is America's original sin. I tend to agree with it. And so we move forward and we get to post-Civil War. Slaves are free, but because of the systems put in place, they're only theoretically free. Isn't that right? Yeah, and that's one of the, I think, more ironic or tragic twists of history is that Lincoln had a different vice president in his first presidency. And he was really worried about winning re-election. It looked like he might not win it. His former general, George McClellan, was running against him uh, about just ending the war without victory. And people were war-weary, so it looked like McClellan might win. Uh, it was before Grant had got his big victories, et cetera. And so Lincoln in the convention does something really unorthodox, didn't even tell his current vice president. Um, he replaced, he replaced the vice president on the ticket with a Southern Democrat. And this is Johnson. So this is Andrew Johnson. So he basically gets a, a Southern Democrat who's sympathetic to the war cause. Otherwise, it, it wouldn't have worked. But puts him on the ticket. So very shortly after Lincoln gets inaugurated for the second term and then is shot by John Wilkes Booth, essentially what happens is a Southerner becomes president of the United States. 
And so, you know, you can speculate wildly, but a hundred years of what happened with Jim Crow and the Southerners basically saying, leave us alone, federal government, to, to deal with our people in our way you know, by, by terrorizing them and by segregating them out, exploiting them. You know, arguably that happened because of the soft stance Johnson took with Reconstruction, which is why he was the first one to be impeached before Bill Clinton. Um, wasn't taken out of office, but was, was impeached because he was taking a very sympathetic Southern view to Reconstruction. So it's incredibly sad what happens with this, but, but the South goes into a period of terrorizing people of color, predominantly black people, so that they are not going to have any power. They can't vote. You know, you had to make a certain amount of money or a, a, a tax. So you had to pay a tax to vote, which most of them couldn't afford, or a literacy test, or, I mean, all sorts of little things were created to essentially exclude African Americans from being able to vote in the South. And therefore, that system continues on for a hundred years. And ironically, just an aside, it's what apartheid in South Africa looked to uh, to learn from. That's why Jim Crow is called Apartheid's Awkward Uncle. And Hitler in the Nuremberg um, laws, so when they basically began to take away citizenship from the Jews and put laws in place to discriminate against the Jews, in Nuremberg when they were doing that, they uh, the lawyers for the Nazi party were looking at Jim Crow law from the South and mimicking it. Used it as a wow. template for how they were going to go about building a discriminatory society. So it's just it's this crazy layered reality, right? Wow, um, I had no idea. So we move forward to the civil rights movement. I know that we're moving fast through this, but uh, but it's all in the book. Um, and we get through the civil rights movement. Um, what happens here, right, is in when when the slaves were freed emancipation, that doesn't totally free them. There has to be that that vote in Congress that, that actually makes it law, right? And so you get the Thirteenth Amendment that basically says all all people are going to be free. Um, there's a clause in the 13th Amendment, however, that still allows for slavery in the United States. And that clause shows up that when somebody is incarcerated, in other words, arrested, then there's a legal statute for them to be able to be enslaved, basically be in a, in a position of bondage. The South exploits this starting in the uh, 1880s, 1890s to create this system called convict leasing. And basically, if we can't um, get slaves if they're free, well, then let's find ways to arrest them. And then they're not free. They're back slaves again. So you have Because these... economically, they rely on free labor. Otherwise, it just doesn't... They can't compete. Well, and they have no power. So if you've got a rich man who knows a judge... And, and says, hey, listen, I need, I need a crew to, to build a railway or to build bridges. The judge is, is not going to stop you from basically pressing bad charges against people. So children as young as 12 would get picked up for vagrancy. So vagrancy was the catch-all. If you're standing on a street corner, um, you can be picked up and put in jail for what's called vagrancy. So little kids, mom putting them on a bus to go to grandma's house, they get off a bus at a, at a rest stop and get picked up for vagrancy and then put on a chain gang and, and leased out to go do the work. And since whites and blacks couldn't mix, the white prisoners, by and large, were kept in the prison and they would send out, uh, this is the all the way on to the 1920s or so, so the wow. late 1800s all the way through the 20s, would be sent out to do this work. And the crazy part about, about convict leasing, I think it was in Mississippi, but in one state, a state in the South, their um, mortality rate was 40% for one year. So all of the, the people that they had incarcerated wrongfully, um, most of, they're certainly not going to get a fair trial, but that they had incarcerated and then were leasing out to go do work, 40% of them died in one year. Oftentimes malaria as they're cl clearing out uh, swamps, etc. Even in, in under slavery, if you owned slaves, you would never treat them so poorly because that was your your property. It had value. So this convict um, leasing system, there's a great book. It's actually called Worse Than Slavery by David Oshinsky. Is a, is a great part of going back and learning history that we don't know. So you asked kind of what makes the history important. I think certainly middle-class white students like myself, I'm now in my early 40s, but you, you grow up 
and you're taught a history that basically is really, really redacted and, and simplified. There was slavery, and, and then there was a civil war, and it didn't really fix anything or everything for quite a while, but then we got it right in, in 1964 and 65, and now we're post-racial, you know, and we should be colorblind and those kinds of things. And I think when we go back and fill in the gaps, so that people can feel the pain and see, wow, what would that do to your great-grandparents or grandparents when families are being broken apart, people are dying, the trauma, I mean, you talk about PTSD, the trauma that comes from being treated by the authorities in such a way, you're beginning to see some of the generational challenges that communities of color are living with today that we tend to uh, you know, turn on certain certain news channels. We tend to be very unsympathetic unsy uh, toward because we don't know the history. I remember when I took a criminal justice class in college when I was in Portland, and that was the very first thing that started to awaken me to injustices in the world. I I learned about uh, the difference between cocaine and crack and how they were how the criminal sentences were different for each of those and how that, you know, subliminally targeted African-Americans versus whites. That was eye-opening for me. So I'd love to dive into that. Yeah, I, I just, Relevant Magazine, um, I just got an email from, from one of their editors asking for a piece on what is the myth of equality. And I think you're putting your finger on it right there. The myth of equality can, can in some ways best be looked at through our cities and then as that rolls forward with how we dealt with issues in our cities, primarily drugs. So our cities, I remember growing up and just feeling like, how come all the black people live together? And how come all the white people live over here? Like, do they just choose that? I mean, we, we didn't, I didn't really have a concept of how cities are formed up the way they are. Uh, and the quick way of saying it is that basically, from the, it was always a trickle, but the largest periods of what's known as the Great Migration would be around World War One and World War Two, where you have large numbers of African Americans from the South, three quarters of the African Americans in the South, um, I think there's a million and a half persons moved from the South to Northern industrial cities. And the motivations are obviously to go find work, to be reunited with family that had moved five years before, ten years before, and and to escape really the tyranny of the South. So Brian Stevenson, uh, who's this giant of a of a man out there now, has incredible, more, yeah, more presence when he command when he gets on a stage than anyone I've ever seen, and he's working down there in Montgomery. Uh, with the Equal Justice Initiative and getting wrongfully incarcerated people out of prison and off a death row. But he talks about it and says, we've always called it wrong. We call it the Great Migration as if, you know, the weather got warmer, so large amounts of black people migrated north. You know, like, he goes, it's a complete, it's a complete misnaming. They were refugees fleeing terror. Mm. So they were fleeing the terrorism, the lynching, uh, of in, in the South, where they had, I mean, literally living in fear, uh, and they fled that to go to the North, and the North didn't receive them. So you had race riots in Chicago. Hey, we didn't invite you people here. Hey, and don't think you're going to live in my neighborhood. And and people were brutalized, uh, neighborhoods set on fire. I mean, just awful stuff in the North where they wouldn't receive these people. L.A., you can watch the O.J. Simpson uh, five-part documentary, the, the 30 for 30 that ESPN did, and you'll see the whole racial history of, of Los Angeles and how you had a police chief uh, who was racist and used to, to go to Klan rallies to do some of his recruiting, um, you know, not, to over, not to overstate it, but some of it, and, and the way they treated the blacks. We didn't invite you here. And it was such a large explosion of the black population in L.A. in such a short amount of time that you really saw a lot of racial tensions grow up. And that's ultimately what led to the Watts riots uh, way back in the 60s. And so, you know, this, this kind of interesting thing is all these people are moving out of the South into different places in the North. And so what happens about this time is you've got, uh, after World War II, the Federal Housing Administration that comes up. And this is um, Roosevelt's plan to not have a Great Depression anymore because banks used to be able to just call in your loan. Like, you owe us 200 grand, we need it by tomorrow, or we're taking your house. And so we needed a different system that was more stable, and so they created the 30-year fixed interest 
uh, mortgage, which, which most people that own a house now, as long as I can pay my monthly payment, the bank cannot take my house from me. So we created, we created this system. We had government loans, but, but now the government's involved in loaning money. They're, they care at this point now about the value of, of homes in different cities. They have the GI Bill where you can go purchase a home and, and get special kind of perks if you're returning uh, from the war. And so the Federal Housing Administration went and did a, an, an assessment of cities and said, um, we're going to color code it by by how safe it is to loan into those areas. And so, you know, you start at the top and then eventually you get to, you know, when you go through your blues and greens and stuff, you eventually get to the red um, districts. So that's where we get the phrase redlining. And it, and it literally would run along a railroad track, maybe along this road, and it would kind of cordon off an area of the town that says, this area has lots of immigrants, lots of minorities, has low economic viability. To loan into that district is, is, a, is a bad investment. And without realizing the racism of it, they just chose not to give loans into those areas. And so what that did was it disadvantaged people of color. So they weren't allowed to move into the new suburbs. Um, there was CCNRs and community rules saying no immigrants, no blacks. It was an ethical violation for a long time uh, th through the early 1900s for a real estate agent to even show or sell a house. In a that was until like the 1970s, if I remember correctly. From yeah. Your book. Yeah. It's, so you've got, you've got this whole history where you can't bring those people into our other, you know, neighborhoods. And one, one cool little fact that helps, you know, bring it all home is Eisenhower during World War II saw how fast the Germans could move troops around because of the Audubon. Audubon was just a freeway and the U.S. didn't have freeways. We had like Route 66 and things like that, but we didn't have freeways. And so Eisenhower came back and when he became president, he really accelerated this idea of we need freeways all across the country so that we can have this ease of movement like what we saw with Germany. And once you create these freeways, all of a sudden you can create suburbs. So, you know, which are new and better and cleaner. And so what happened was the white people with means that could, could secure the loans and all this stuff moved further away from the city and opened up the older parts, which are in the inner city. And that's ultimately the only places that were left for um, people of color to go. But when you had all these people without the resources, that meant that there was low kind of business um, possibilities, a lot of uh, low economic value, right? So you don't have as many businesses. The businesses move out to where the people are that have money. And you created this this thing that we would call a ghetto situation or um, inner city in that phrase that comes with it. But that was all through the systems and structures that the U.S. government had in place um, that privileged some and not others. And that didn't end until um, the 60s. And so my dad came over in 53. Ironically, it was only in 52 that we took the white clause out of immigration. So you, you had to be a white person to immigrate, um, you know, before 52. My dad comes over wow. in 53 and, and he ends up paying for me to go to college and then grad school and is retired now and did really well. And how did a, an immigrant from Holland, you know, whose mom had MS, who they only had $20 when they got here, how was he able to make so much money? Well, it was every three years in the military, in the Navy, he, he would buy a house and sell a house every time we moved. And as that appreciated, that's where the generational wealth came in. Um, your house is a big savings bank, right? And so for most of the 1900s and through most of the big housing booms, um, people of color were, were completely excluded from the, the value that the housing boom would have brought. So... If you, if you really want to know why we have some of the disparity or the myth of equality that exists, um, the title of the book, Myth of Equality, I mean, it, it's in, in all these little subjects. The housing and the Federal Housing Administration was a massive part of that, and it led to segregation. And uh, so just one comment on the next part is when drugs come in 
in the 70s and then the crack uh, cocaine epidemic in the early 80s, you could almost treat them differently. In the suburbs, they're snorting coke. In, in the downtown area, you've got these people that are doing crack. Um, we don't like that. It makes us feel unsafe. A lot of us work in the city. We need to deal with those people, the other, right? And so we created sentencing laws that were five times as strict for crack cocaine as they were for regular cocaine. Which and is it, basically the same drug just used by different people. Same chemical compound. <laughs> and that that persisted for some 20 years and, and just recently, you know, has, has been changing. And so we we incarcerated just tons of men and separated them from families and women. And it begins this thing that we now know as mass incarceration, where we have... Uh, 25% of the world's prison population, even though America has only 5% of the people in the world. We just incarcerated whole generations of people, predominantly at an astron uh, astronomically higher percentage, uh, persons of color. And so we're really beginning to look back at this and go, wait a second, is there a problem with the African-American community? Or is there a problem with the inner city? Is there a problem with family values here or there? Is there a problem with... and and whatever that answer is doesn't really matter. The question that I keep asking is, how could there not be if you've got 400 years of trauma as part of your experience in this country? And until we own that, I don't think we can come into a deep enough relationship to actually try and work for real solutions alongside other people. I think that this is a perfect segue to jump into privilege because essentially what we just talked about is how for several hundred years in American history, blacks in this country have been at a disadvantage. And during that whole time, whites have had, had have just had the opportunity that America is quote unquote known for, you know? And I think that we take it for granted and maybe that's where privilege comes in. Uh, but privilege, the word itself, has a lot of maybe stigma associated with it, especially right now. What's the biggest misconception with this word? So there's a book that just came out recently that made a lot of headlines. And the, the author basically argues we need to stop talking about privilege because naming other people's advantage never actually deals with injustice. And I don't know that I have a problem with that sentence. Me being the victim and naming your advantage might not be the best way um, for me, you know, in that situation. But I'm not called in, in when we're talking about racial privilege to figure out what's best for the African-American community, Korean-American community, um, you know, Latinos. Like I, I'm not in, in those communities to help them figure out ultimately how to pursue dignity in the best possible way. I have to own the reality in which I live. In other words, if I'm going to be a responsible moral agent in society and I do have privilege, I have to acknowledge that. My daughter, my oldest daughter's 15. I have four daughters. Um, we were in Phoenix just two weeks ago. And so all four daughters went to this real, um, I'd never seen anything like it. They, they make the ice cream on the spot, like freeze dry it for you. Totally customized, ridiculous. Um, but so all four of my daughters get ice cream. And my third daughter gets this little kitty cup and all the other kids are these big, massive adult things. I don't know what happened, but she just got a smaller one, right? And she was really upset. And I looked at my oldest daughter and my oldest daughter goes, hey, it's not my fault. Right. We, and, you know, and she needs to learn how to deal with it. And I, I looked at her and this is just like the privilege conversation. I said, whether it's whether she should feel like a victim or not, or whether that's best for her or not, uh, Mary Joy, my oldest, you are in a situation right now. You saw what happened. And if this is somebody that that matters in your life, you need to figure out how to deal with your your privilege in a way that increases the humanity in this situation, right? Mm. Um, so it doesn't matter if Sarah shouldn't be whining. That's not the point. The point is, what do you do um, realizing that you've been advantaged uh, and that things really aren't fair here? So a baseball team, um, 
I don't, you know, you could be out on the field and not feel like you have an advantage, right? Like I don't, it's the same as it always was or, or what you think it would be. I got my two hands, I got my glove, got my shoes until you see that the other team comes out with one arm tied behind their back. And then you realize, oh, like we do have an advantage. So it's hard. I think when we talk about racial privilege or white privilege, because we don't feel it in, in many respects, we have it because other people don't. Um, if, if pe persons of color have been disadvantaged throughout history in this country, that means by proxy, some people have been advantaged, right? I still feel normal. I don't necessarily see it, but I'm swimming in the center of the stream where there's a lot of current. And so a lot of people will talk these days about poor whites and, and there's a growing number of poor whites in the, the life expectancy of poor whites is decreasing rapidly. So, you know, some people will go, look, um, privilege isn't a racial thing, it's, it's a class thing or it's an economic thing. And my answer to that would just simply be, look, if it's two in the morning in Mississippi and you get pulled over, would you rather be white or black? If, you know, if Airbnb just changed their discrimination policies, um, it wasn't because people were, were being prejudiced against and filtering out Anglo-Saxon Christian sounding names. It's because you, <laughs> The prejudices exist when, when you're a person of color and you get pulled over. Uh, when you put your name down for an application and you don't get a call back because it sounds like a black name or like a, an immigrant name. And so, you know, you kind of begin to look at these things more and more and go, those are very subtle, but they exist. And, and the biases that, that happen with, with, um, juries and grand juries and, and DAs. And even if it's a subtle thing, when you multiply it over time, what does it actually produce in society? And I think if I'm going to be a brother or sister to persons of color or to immigrants or whatever it might be, I have to understand the unique privilege that I have in this society because white has been the normative kind of centering principle for a long time. And you see this with Ferguson that when you had these, uh, these protests going on, the groups of white people came out and when they would position themselves between the police and the, and the, uh, the black protesters, the police would all of a sudden respond differently. They wouldn't have their guns up as, as high. They would step back a little bit. And so what's really going on there? That whiteness kind of takes the edge out because it's naming in some sense that, that racial tension. Um, so it's, I mean, we could keep going with it on and on, but it doesn't mean white privilege. It doesn't mean that you don't work hard. It doesn't mean that life is easy for you. It just means that if you were a person of color, historically speaking, it might have been a lot harder. For instance, if you, uh, if you do landscaping, and I had this conversation with a guy, and he was a tree cutter, so he cuts trees in people's backyards and stuff like that. I said, so how, you know, how do you get your business? Well, I go put door knockers on, in neighborhoods. What kind of neighborhoods? Well, like the suburbs. You know, people that have trees and like to manicure them or, you know, take, take them out so they can put in flower, flower beds, etc. So you put door knockers on homes in, in suburban areas. Yeah. And when you get a job, when do you work? What do you mean when do I work? Well, when do you work? Well, business hours between nine to five. And, and it's in their, in their backyard. And he's like, yeah. I said, so if you were a black person, 29, you're 29. If you were a black person and you were walking through the suburbs, going up to doors and putting on door knockers and working in the backyards of white people's homes, uh, between nine and five when, you know, either husband or wife or both are away and you're up there cutting trees for several days on end. Do you, do you think, do you think that some of those people might not wonder, is he going to bring some of his friends back? Did he see the stereo through the window? Is this really safe? You know, and, and even if it's subtle or even if it only happens every once in a while when, when you're talking about racist families in those neighborhoods, not all of them are. Um, in, in short, would it affect your business? You think you have to work really hard as a, as a tree cutter. Would it make it easier or harder if you were a person of color trying to do the exact same things? Mm. And, and he goes, yeah, I, I guess I can see your point. And so privilege, white privilege doesn't mean your life's easy. Doesn't mean you, you don't work hard. It just simply means that there are others in our society purely because of, of their skin color that might or do have a much harder time than, than you do. And so I think that that brings us to kind of our third section, which is 
what can we do? How can we take action? Which is, what are people doing who have become aware of their privilege, who have become aware of the history of race in America? What are they doing to move things forward? And how can we do that ourselves? Yeah, this is where I've made most of my mistakes, my mistakes over the last, uh, you know, uh, half dozen or more years. Um, I think the temptation for type A middle class uh, Americans really, excuse me, is to, is to, is to always try and fix something, right? So when we see a problem, well, we need to fix it. And we're not used to running into problems that are so deep or intractable or ubiquitous that that it's kind of foolish to say, how can I fix this, right? Um, communities of color have a long tradition of that. Slaves in the South would meet on Sundays for church and they would sing, uh, you know, the Negro spirituals, you know, swing low, sweet chariot. And, and they, they had a, a songbook. They had poetry. They had art forms around this idea of lamenting and persevering, even though they had zero power to change the system. So a lot of us don't have that history of some things you can't change easily, some things you make worse when you try too hard to change it. Um, because it becomes pedantic or as if you're, you're talking down to people or, or you're the one that's gonna kind of ride in and fix what others couldn't. So I, I think the first thing I, is, is to really sit back to listen, uh, to the experience of others, to learn. There's a lot of history here that we were never taught that I think we need to go back and, and, and learn of what the experience in America has been for other people. Um, that's why, you know, some of these phrases like make America great again, it, you know, to someone in the fifties that moved into the suburbs and for the first time got a refrigerator and, and a stove top and had a garage and, you know, it, it makes sense, you know, milkshakes and leave it to beaver. Like we, we want to be great again, like we were then to a Native American uh, or to some African Americans or, or others, it, the question is, when, when were we great? You know, I don't know that in my experience, or my family's experience, that we've ever reached that place, right? So it's, it's how does that language hit different people based on their experience in this same country? So I think we have a lot of learning. So listen, learn. I think the more you learn, uh, like I, I shared that one book, um, Worse Than Slavery, it's a small book, less than 200 pages, but if, if you don't have to put that, that book down and walk away for a week or two, I'd be shocked. It, it, it's so visceral and, and puts you into a, a time and a place that was so brutal that it really messes you up. And I think we have to learn how to lament, like really see the pain, feel it, and, and lament it. Um, and then I think we begin to move forward and go, I have to be willing to see the leaders of color that are already in the inner city or other communities working really hard to address the ills in their communities, and I have to serve them. So instead of coming in with my new nonprofit and, and basically going, you know, here I am, and missing the fact that there are people that have been there for decades that might not have the same resources as I do, because I come from a middle class area, I can fundraise from from people that have means or resources. Like instead of coming in to do it, I think we need to partner, collaborate, and serve the people that are actually in a better position to kind of address some of these things in their own communities. And, and ultimately that means laying down privilege, which is a really, that, that phrase, by the way, is a really tricky one. Um, because the loss of privilege feels like oppression, but it's not. Um, so if I, I talk to white people that feel like, hey, I feel discriminated against. I feel this reverse racism out there. Um, it's all actually bad language. Reverse racism means that the systems or the structures disadvantage you because of color. It doesn't mean, hey, this guy got the job and you didn't and you're frustrated and you think it's reverse racism. You still have a job like, and you weren't entitled to that job in the first place. Those people could hire whoever they want. So you, you actually haven't been a victim of racism. You just 
all of a sudden are coming to grips with the loss of privilege that I think you might have grown up thinking was naturally yours in a society that was built around whiteness. So the loss of privilege feels a lot like oppression, but it's not. And so when I started giving up speaking engagements to leaders of color, like, hey, you don't need me. There's plenty of white dudes on your stage. Here's this person. Or I'm fundraising not for my own projects, but how to help um, get leaders of color published, this new publishing thing called Voices Publishing with a friend of mine. And and now all of a sudden I'm going, man, if I had been raising that money for myself, my career would be going faster or my own take home pay would be easier or, you know, and then you go, wait a second, that's actually what I'm laying down. I mean, that's what I'm choosing to do to serve because Otherwise, I'm benefiting from privilege. I'm just, I'm just floating in that river, taking all the things I can because I can get them because of, of being, uh, you know, a, a pretty decent, um, sharp white guy. Um, and I like that that's an action step. It's not that you're losing your privilege. It's that you're laying down your privilege. And I think that when you feel convicted by this, and especially listeners to this podcast who are used to making a difference in the world and saying, hey, this is something I want to take action on and do something about it feels a little bit like inaction, but ultimately it is inaction to say, I'm going to give up my privilege. And it's a proactive choice, and it happens not just once. It happens on a daily basis. Yeah, and I think there's something deeply theological here around the concept of love, right? So um, you lay down your life for a brother or sister. You know That's kind of the religious way of defining love. And really what that is is sacrifice. And another way of saying sacrifice is the willingness to be inconvenienced or the willingness to incur pain because of something mm. else. So, so bringing that home, anytime we really love something, um, you have a child. I really love this child. Well, that child could get hurt, die, or make decisions you don't agree with. Every time you love something, you're opening yourself up for the potential of suffering, right? For the potential of being inconvenienced. If you and I, Brandon, became best friends, we would be in that um, accepting the idea that we could hurt each other or that, you know, I might suffer because of this friendship. What if one of us gets cancer and, and we go, hey, no, I'm going to be there for you. So anytime we love something, we're really opening ourselves up to suffer. Here's where the disconnect happens with race. We think or we want to say that we love our black or brown or red or, or whatever it is, um, brothers and sisters. But instead of going towards sacrifice or suffering or the willingness to be inconvenienced because that's a part of love, we always default to compassion. And compassion is where I get to feel deeply and, and do some kind of action, give you some money, tweet about you, um, tell you how awful you, you know it is that what you're going through, and then walk away and feel like I'm a really good person because I've had a compassion hit, right? And so I think there's something challenging with the dominant culture here where we really have to go, no, if, if love is, is what's going to drive us, the equality that comes about from that is going to become because we've now... Uh, been willing to take on that willingness to be inconvenienced, to suffer, or to sacrifice uh, for the other person. And that's a discipline, And but that's real. Like you said, that's an action step. It's real. Man, what a good conversation. I was telling somebody about this conversation after I finished recording, and I told them <laughs> I went into the conversation expecting that we we're going to have like a scholarly conversation where we talk through all of the implications of race and privilege and the histories. And that's what we did. But my expectation was that I would come at it from just a head level. I'd done the research. I'd spent time reading. I'd spent time digging into the topic. And now I was going to help communicate it. But I left the conversation feeling convicted. At the end of the conversation, Ken gave some action steps. He said, you know, we've got to know our history. We've got to learn from the past. We've got to allow ourselves to be inconvenienced. We've got to lay down our privilege and give platform to someone who would not normally have the opportunity that we do. He like pushed into this deeper and said, we can't just stay at the feeling deeply phase and we can't just have like a compassion hit. 
Love is about suffering and the willingness to sacrifice in a real way for the other. And I love the conversation thinking, dang, like, am I doing that well enough? Am I actually sacrificing? Or is it all just in my head? Is it all even just in my heart? It's got to be in my actions. So that's what I'm leaving this conversation with. This idea that I probably need to work harder. And honestly, it's probably not going to be easy either because Ken also had this quote where he said, the loss of privilege feels like oppression, but it's not. So it's going to suck. It's not easy, but that's the process that we're going through. And that's ultimately what I care about. And I think that this community cares about. If you connected with this conversation as much as I did, you should absolutely check out Ken's book, The Myth of Equality. It really dives deeper into some of these things we've been talking about. And I think that it's so important and so valuable. And I wish that more people would read it. The book comes out on June 6th. You can pre-order it wherever you get books. And you should also go and find Ken online. You can Google Ken Weitzma. It'll come up with uh, his social media, his website, everything. Ken really is an expert on the world of justice, and I admire him for that. You can check out other episodes of Sounds Good. Find out about our good newsletter and good newspaper at goodgoodgood.co. And you can find us on social media everywhere at goodgoodgoodco. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. Go out and do some good this week. And we'll be back next week with another inspiring conversation from an incredible person. Sound good?